I think that we should understand that women are very afraid of power, generally speaking. Women are very afraid of being very rich and they're very afraid of being very powerful because there is a trope that is part of our unconscious societal bias and we're always two biases we're fighting, the culturally narrated one and the societal one. Part of our societal bias is to be afraid of being very rich and very powerful because we will be punished for it somewhere and it's not good girl enough and it's not this and it's not that. So, as I said, because I'm quirky and I didn't have a problem failing, I was like, bring it on. You couldn't do worse to me than I've done to me already. To be fair, people have tried. So you do need to understand that the fear of these things will not stop bad things happening to you. So if they're gonna happen, why don't you just have control over your own life instead? So I became powerful as the alternative to being a victim. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. Okay, so I've been really clear over the course of this year that I am I'm doing the the work. For me, the work is around my health. It's around mindset. It's around stepping into who I need to be to lead my business and my life at the level of impact that I envision and want for myself. And this is deeply personal because what I want for me and how I want to do it doesn't have to be how you want it for you. I knew in my core and being that I couldn't keep doing the things the way I had always done them and get different results. I needed to make some internal shifts. And I also felt for myself that I'd kind of hit a wall in terms of my own work, my self-facilitated work. I was going through the motions at the gym. Every year I was like, I'm going to be in the best shape of my life. And then I would do the same thing at the gym that I did the previous year. And I was like, I don't know why I'm not in the best shape. Well, I knew why, but I wasn't in the best shape of my life. And so what I was declaring I wanted and the actions I was taking were not necessarily congruent. And there's no judgment with that. It was just the reality of where I was. I sought out the support of two coaches in particular, one with respect to my nutrition and fitness, which may seem ironic given that I'm a naturopathic doctor and have 8 million years of school and training around nutrition, but I needed someone to hold me to account. I needed to not think about it or unthink about it or manipulate it myself. And the second were around some of my patterns of thinking and core beliefs that were holding me back from seeing new options and new potential. And so what I'm excited to do today is introduce you to my mindset coach, Gita Sudurab. And I met Gita. She is in one of my mastermind groups. And we went out to breakfast and I shared with her my vision of some of the things I wanted to do with my life. And she instantly shared with me some blinders or traps where I was going to get caught and moving forward. And it was compassionate and insightful and intriguing. And it sealed the deal for me in making the decision to move forward and coach with Gita one-on-one through a portion of 2023. Now, the thing I need you to understand about this woman is that Gita is a multifaceted entrepreneur. She has been in the public forum for much of her life. She has an incredible personal story and amazing successes as an entrepreneur. She was a lawyer. She moved into the health coaching space and now finds herself with a roster of clients, of powerful women looking to dismantle the thinking that's holding them back from their true potential. And when I say 
powerful women with big businesses and presence. I'm talking about women like Gwyneth Paltrow. I'm talking about women like the Duchess of York or Sam Smith of FinCup or Nadia Swarovski. Individuals who have had or created for themselves incredible access and pathways and potential for power. But also women who, just like you and I, have stories that they tell themselves that are holding them back from their true potential. Gita has been massively instrumental for me this year, in part because of her directness, the questions that she asks, and the compassion with which she guides you through some of the thinking traps that are holding you back. I've been so excited to have this interview and this opportunity for you to meet Gita. And so without further ado or reservation, it is honestly my honor and privilege to introduce you to my friend and coach, Gita Sudhu-Rob. Gita Sudhu-Rob, welcome to Impact. Thank you for having me. Let's set the stage appropriately, and everyone already got an introduction to you. I wanted to have this conversation with you because you are my coach. And in the time that we have been working together with just consistency, I've just been shedding these layers and moving into a new state of my own personal power. And I wanted to share this conversation and I wanted to share you with my audience because part of the intention I set this year was I'm going to be transparent about this evolution, about the decisions that I'm making, about why I'm making, about the work that I'm doing, how it's elevating me to this next level. And so it is frankly impossible to do that without people having access to you. So before we start to unpack some of the conversations and some of the the layers that we are addressing in my life, which I think are so pervasive in the lives of powerful women everywhere, can you just share with my audience in your own words a little bit about you and what makes you so uniquely positioned to do this work? I think the real reason I'm really good at this is because if there was anything that I could fail at, I failed at it. If there was anything I could screw up, I screwed it up. If there was anything I could get wrong, I got it wrong. Then I married it. Then I had to divorce it. So I'm, I am 100% encapsulated everything that could go wrong. Highly credentialed. Right? I have credentials. Like I make speeches around the world on how much I have failed. And one of the interesting things, I think, is that as powerful women, because we're under the microscope so much, we're terrified to fail. Oh, well, let me tell you, how many ways have I failed? Where's Shakespeare when you need him? The ways in which I have failed. I think that's what qualifies me. And I made a decision that I would either live or be afraid. And I was just afraid. I can't tell you. I'm an Indian who grew up in Africa. I joke I was colonized twice. And, you know, I grew up in an incredibly wealthy aristocratic family, which meant nobody cared what I thought. They just wanted me to smile. They were like, sorry, you're not prettier, darling. Just smile and get educated was kind of what I was told. And that was what I grew up with. You're bright as hell, not that great looking. You'll be an asset if we make you into an asset. So nobody cared what I wanted or what I thought. And so when you come from just be a good girl and get on with it, and then you think, well, you know what? I don't like that. And then you're constantly having to deal with that. That kind of makes you a very particular kind of person. Can we just start with this failure piece? Because it is so matter of fact in which you say, oh, I just failed and then failed some more and failed some more. And I don't like the feeling of failure, but I'm not scared of it. 
So can we start there where this, like if we gave people three options, you can give a speech in front of 10,000 individuals, die or fail at something. People are like paralyzed with choice because they're all equally bad. Like where does this absolute fear of failure originate from? And why is it so bad in particular for women? You know, I think that I'm going to say something a little controversial. (laughs) No. Yeah, just a tad. The thing is, I think that for women in particular, our entire survival has depended on being appropriate, being approved of, being accepted. Now, when that is your inherited, unconscious, core bias, kind of like the we'll burn you as a witch type thing. But when your core bias is that your approval is vital to your survival, you can't fail, can you? How can you possibly fail? I mean, it's not even difficult to think. How can you fail when the only way you get fed, watered, your children are looked after, you get at home, you're not thrown out? All this stuff is only going to happen when you're approved of. So then you sublimate that to such a deep extent. Like now if I go towards my core and all you ladies go into your solar plexus, you'll feel a dredge of that fear. A dredge? Dreg of that fear. Dregs, that's the word I'm looking for, of that fear. Sitting, see, I just failed at that. Sitting there waiting to flare up into absolute freaking panic. So what you have to do is understand that your brain pathways are set to panic at the thought of failure, bottom line. In fact, your cellular bloody memory is set to freeze at the thought of failure. Can we just talk about the masculine feminine in this relationship to failure for a quick second? Yeah. Because it has been my experience, and I'm generalizing in gender terms here, and appreciate the fluidity of this, but... It has been my experience that the fear of failure is much more pervasive in women than it is in men. And I don't know when I have intimate conversations with men if that is actually the truth or whether they have, you know, superior management skills or narratives around failure in society. But can we just address that for one second before we move on? Yeah. Men's core fear of failure is very different to ours, right? Ours is very approval based. That means failing ever is a terrifying thought for a woman because there are so many people available to judge me. Whereas with a man, they're not brought up to fear failure in the same way. Fear for failure for a man, and I'm not a man, so I'm 100% generalizing, is a fear to provide. So you're the person that's not providing for your family. You're the person that's not living up to your potential of what you're meant to be doing. So can you see how that's a different approach to failure? Mm-hmm. I failed to do something. That's external. But to call me a failure as a man, whoa, hang on, let me beat you because then my physical body will just show you how I'm not a failure. But if I call you as a failure as a woman, oh my God, the touchstones. I've been called a failure as a daughter, a mother, a sister, gosh, a wife. I'm pretty crap at being a wife. Let's be really clear. I need to own that failure. Businesswoman. And that's not even including the times I've thought I was a failure. Can we be powerful and have this fear of failure as a simultaneous experience? No, 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 not even slightly. And I'll tell you this, I'm a very powerful woman and I love that about myself. And the fact that I'm very powerful enables me to discuss failure in a way that other people can't discuss it. They're mutually exclusive in the way that people see them. So yes, you can fail and be powerful, but no, you can't see yourself as a failure and be powerful. What's the relationship between, we're going somewhere with this, what's the relationship between imposter syndrome and fear of failure? Or is there one? Or are they on the same continuum? Are they in the same family? Is the symptoms feel like they come from a common place? 
Let me give a strategic view of that and then come inwards. The thing with strategically, like these are the people that I work with, people like you, who are incredibly successful externally, but internally don't feel good about who they are and how they are and about themselves generally, right? And as women, we're really good at isolating those two things. We're really good at achieving a lot. Like I have been in the public eye for almost all of my adult life. I have managed to be in the public eye, do all this incredible work, da, 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 and still feel like a failure. I managed to do both those things. Well, because for me, I was like, I refuse to do this. What's the alternative? So when you get women, the more successful they are, then the worse they can feel internally. Because the difference between how they're perceived externally and who they are internally is so wide that they start to feel like an imposter. What else are you going to do? Can you see that? It's just natural. How would you not feel like an imposter? Mm-hmm. Every time somebody goes, oh, your hair's so beautiful. <laughs> it needs a wash. Wow, that's a great top. Oh, really? It was like three pounds. It was so cheap. You just built this insane business. I know, but like, wow, I didn't spend any time with my kids. When you break it down like that, it's just, it's inevitable, isn't it? It's the inevitable byproduct. So what do we do with that? I shared before we got on, I've had conversations all week with women who are like, I want, I want what you're getting. I want a business that's affording me and providing me with this lifestyle or access to travel or freedom or impact or whatever the case may be. But, but, and they're like, I know this is an internal story. I just cannot get past that I do not feel like I am as credentialed as that dude down the street who speaks with authority or that woman over there who's got a prettier website than me. We're just caught. And I watch individuals do this and hang out in this space, not for a few weeks, but for years. They've hit the ceiling of their capacity for impact because of this story, this imposter syndrome, which in my experience is actually pervasive. Like I haven't met anyone who hasn't had that, but the difference is there's people who just move through it. How do you get people to move through it and past it? So generally speaking, basically what I'm doing is trying to get whoever I'm speaking with or the group that I'm speaking with, I'm trying to coach them to understand a few things, right? And then what those things are, they give us tools. So the first thing, I mean, and you have your version of this, because obviously I've coached you on this, but the one thing I want everybody to think about is that actually the control to change this is in your hands. It's 100% in your hands. Because if you take responsibility for being appalling, then I want you to take responsibility for the fact that you can change that as well. You must, you can't take responsibility for one and not the other. Mm -hmm. So my joy is that I think if anything goes wrong, I can change this. And so if I can change this, then everything is wonderful, right? So for me, what happened, if I could just personalize this for a moment, is I followed a lot of the pathways that I was meant to follow, which I really resisted, but I did them kind of, you know, sassily because I'm really snarky because I didn't want to do them. So I became a lawyer, hated being a lawyer, became a corporate negotiator, loved it, married, had babies and built this huge business very fast with my ex, who was appalling, horrendous man, treated us all really, really badly, physically, emotionally, everything. And so I walked out and my mother said, what are you doing? You can't leave all that money. Go back. And it was so interesting to me because I wasn't relevant. And I was like, hang on, I've been a really good girl all this time. And surely I get a payoff for being a good girl. I did everything you wanted me to do. And I should be very clear that I was quite well known at this time. So that made it even worse. Right. And so I ended up where he emptied every bank account because I had a lot of issues around being the person that was running the money. I was happy to make it and then left it all for him to manage, as it were. We're not doing that one again. As I said, there was another failure. And I ended up homeless with three small kids under the age of seven. 
and my mother left town and I had a girlfriend gave me a room to sleep in. So I slept on the floor. Let me explain that I came from my private plane, my home in Monaco, my everything. Let me give this context. Yeah, let me give you context. Mm -hmm. My 10 million pound house. I had a Ferrari with a roof, Ferrari without a roof. I had a Rolls Royce. I had everything. We'd worked out the braiding color on the private plane seats, you know, that this is where we were from. And then I had 200 pounds and nothing else. And the joy of this spectacular failure, which I had let down my family, my culture, oh, you name it. I had failed on every level. What everybody wanted me to do, Megan, they wanted me to go away. They wanted me to hide. And I remember thinking, I don't want to go away. I don't want to hide. I was like, this is not my fault. And therefore, I will not let you make me feel like I've done something wrong. But I had done something wrong because I hadn't accepted. I hadn't put it up. I hadn't just taken the bullshit. And I was petrified. I could not sleep. So I used to put the kids to bed. I would walk out of my friend's house and I would walk the streets of London for hours at a time, just trying to calm my brain down. And I remember sitting there thinking, never again, never again. I don't care what happens, never again. I burnt the good girl. I burnt it all. I was literally scorched earth. And then I salted that shit and I went never again. I would love to say it was a really great fast and it took me 15 years to become this version of me. And I'm still evolving. It took me 15 years. And in that 15 years, here's what I did to answer the original question you've asked me about five centuries ago, which is that what I do now, I do it for you and I do it for me. I find the actual problem. I'll keep saying, but why and how and what is that and where is it? I find the original core problem that you're really afraid of. And then I unpack that for you. And I show you that when you actually look at that problem, if it happened, you wouldn't die. And then there's an acceptance that takes place when you get there and you just kind of absorb it. And you're like, oh, and then what it does is it shifts kind of your brain pathway to accept another outcome. Because what we're doing is trying to reframe how your brain works. So it accepts goodness, not just badness. Mm-hmm. And then we do that again and again and again and again. You mentioned something in there in passing. You said the good girl payoff. I want to sit in that energy for a second yeah. because I feel like I experience this energy from people. It can express itself as righteousness or as anger or as entitlement, frustration. Depends on your human design, how this is going to manifest for you. This good girl payoff, I see. I see this with healthcare workers a lot because we have so many women going in healthcare. And it manifests like this. I worked so hard in school and I got straight A's and I have like $800 million in student loans and therefore I deserve, and we fill in this blank. Like my business should succeed because I did all of this other stuff over there. And this thinking and this expectation, I have no problem with expecting wealth and abundance, but it being in direct response to all the good girling that you did for the last 20 years, I find really challenging. Yeah, but it's not their fault. If the society Agreed. constantly and consistently tells you, if you're a good girl, you'll get yours. You're like, uh, hello, where's mine? I want to address and see and like call out this line of thinking because it's like a dead end thinking tool. Yeah, but the good girl will never be rich. The good girl will never be happy. The good girl will never have self-respect. The good girl will never have self-love. The good girl will never permeate with lush, abundant femininity because they are directly opposite. So the good girl is never going to be happy and she doesn't know how to cope with it. So she tries to make it someone else's fault. And I can't blame her for it. I don't want to go near her, 
but I can't blame her for it because that's what she was told. And where does she get hers? Where, as women, do we get ours? We get offered it enough, we get promised it enough, but we don't get ours. So I'm here to tell you that shit's never happening. Never. Take this to the bank. It's never happening. So change it. Before on the trajectory of like the good girl thinking and I'm doing all of the things and I'm not failing and I'm not being bad and I'm doing what I am supposed to do. I'm miserable. Right. And we know that this is leading to a dead end. What is the shift in thinking that allows us to move the course in a different direction? Well, one of the things that happens is perimenopause. Perimenopause forces. <laughs> I don't want to wait till perimenopause, Gita, and I'm in denial of my own. Let me tell you, sweetie, post 35 these days. But perimenopause is one thing that's going to force you to shift. The way that this changes is for you to start creating an internal barometer. And the way you create your internal barometer is for you to understand, does this make me feel good or bad? Let me give you a better example. Is this audio or is it video as well? It's all of the above. But for those of you listening, we are looking at the little stand that Gita puts her phone on so she can record her amazing TikTok videos. Right? What I want you to do is this thing that goes around the telephone. I want you to look at this and think of this as being your life. This is your deepest fear and this is your highest joy. They are 100% connected. And what is very interesting is that if you don't know what your deepest fear is, I suggest you look at your life. Someone once said this to me and I wanted to slap them and I had to walk away because I wanted to actually slap, murder, jump up and down and kill them. All those things. I had to leave. It was so upsetting. I was like, oh my God, you mean I created my own life? I hate this. So I want you to think of this as a concept where there is a core bottom and a core top and they're linked to each other. Okay. Now, when you don't know what your deepest fear is, number one, look around your life. The way you're living, you created it. That's your deepest fear because your subconscious will always win to create the lowest common fear, lowest common denominator that you can think of. Then look at the best thing in your life and that's your highest joy. Now, in order to shift this life to another life, you have to do one of two things. You either have to give a greater capacity for joy or you have to reduce your deepest fear so that it's no longer your deepest fear. So when I'm coaching with you, what I'm doing is I'm always touching both of these. And I shift it higher and higher. You see why tripods are so useful? Higher and higher and higher. But they're connected. Mm -hmm. You cannot do one without the other. That's why when people go and do lottery wins, in six years, they're back where they started. Because your subconscious will pull you back down. So you can say, I'm willing to accept my joy. Give me my joy. And he'll be like, yeah, crickets. Mm -hmm. Right? So I always start with your deepest fear. Because when I can help you to unpack your deepest fear and not run away from it, when I can help you to see it and not be afraid of it, and it's your fear from when you were four, that's your inner child running that. Unpack it, get rid of it, not be afraid of it. Then as that moves up, your capacity to receive more joy is up as well. It's actually that simple. Let's talk about what needs to be present and in place, the ingredients of women stepping into a state of power and abundance. Because ultimately, when we look at the profile of people that you are working with, I mean, you work with very powerful women and you are highly successful at dismantling the stories and the beliefs and the dead end thinking that holds them back from their true potential. What do we need to be aware of? What needs to be present in order to step into that state of power? What are the ingredients? So to be fair, I work with normal people and very powerful people because I like that difference, you know, because I think everybody deserves the opportunity to do this. But I think to me, that's important. Secondly, 
I think that we should understand that women are very afraid of power, generally speaking. Women are very afraid of being very rich and they're very afraid of being very powerful because there is a trope that is part of our unconscious societal bias. And we're always two biases we're fighting, the culturally narrated one and the societal one. Part of our societal bias is to be afraid of being very rich and very powerful because we will be punished for it somewhere. And it's not good girl enough and it's not this and it's not that. So as I said, because I'm quirky and I didn't have a problem failing, I was like, bring it on. You couldn't do worse to me than I've done to me already. To be fair, people have tried, but <laughs> there's a place where <laughs> you should never say things like that. But there is a place where I was like, you know, so you do need to understand that the fear of these things will not stop bad things happening to you. So if they're going to happen, why don't you just have control over your own life instead? So I became powerful as the alternative to being a victim. I used to joke that I had doorstep tattooed on my back, doormat. I would be like, step this way, you know, because that's who I was. It was a joke, honestly, that, that I had, because that's how I was. And I was just like, I'm really tired. And so what happens is that you get to a place where you're like, you know what? Never again. That's what I hear when people come in the door. Never again. Now, when you get tired of feeling like a victim, of feeling like crap, of hating your life, of hating every single thing and thinking, shit, I have another 20, 30, 50, 80 years of life. Or when you look at anti-aging things and think, oh, please don't make another way of me to live longer. This sucks. Then you're kind of ready. At that stage, you think, no, I must feel better. This is not acceptable for me to feel like this. At that stage, I can help you to understand power and abundance is joyful, sexy. I feel like what's happening here is that we're unveiling this idea that you get what you tolerate. Yeah, but you don't know that. That's the problem. You don't know that because half my problem is trying to teach women that in fact, they're only getting what they tolerate. And see the things they're tolerating. And the more successful they are, the harder work they are to teach them that. When you work with like really powerful women. And I mean, people with like hundreds of millions of dollars and- Oh, and run countries and- And run countries and like recognizable individuals. What are some of the commonalities of things that they have overcome? Like, did they all have imposter syndrome? Yes. Did they have issues with self-worth? Like, I feel like one of the things we do is we look at powerful women, we're like, oh, well, I'm not one of them. And we opt ourselves out of understanding our commonalities. I want to start there foundationally. Like, what are some of the human commonalities that we have with these powerful individuals? And then what did they do differently? Oh my God, it's shocking. They all feel fat. They all feel ugly. You know, they all feel not ugly, but like, oh, I wish I could, or I could, you know, they all feel inadequate. They all worry about taking their clothes off in public. They all worry about what their children think of them. They all worry about the exact same shit you and I worry about. I'm not so much in that place because I've consciously removed myself. But let me tell you how if my elder daughter turned up and started talking about my mothering, I'd be panicking too <laughs> because I'm human. So, you know, I'm on a continuum of that, but there is a place where I'd be afraid. <laughs> sure. They're exactly like you and me. They just have a higher profile and more people watching them. But what enables them to stay in that place of power? Why are they not paralyzed by it? They're not in a place of power. No successful person has ever become successful without a system, ever, right? So what they do is they work their system to be successful and stay successful. And they feel terrible inside. Because even with you, like I come to work with you, you're very successful. You will continue to be more successful, but it's the feeling inside that made you hire me, not the success. 
And then the joy of it is, is the more that you work on the inside, the way more money you make, the more famous you get, the more abundance you create, if those are the things that you want. I've literally taken a woman who was in a really unhappy marriage and she was turning over about three million, three and a half million when she came to work with me. We went through a public listing. So she listed her company on the stock exchange and she left her business August last year at 53 million, 53.6 million last earnings. And she got the, the company to pay for me for a year, which I was like, I don't know how to tell you how much that touched me because you don't always, you're not the one doing the work. You're doing the work. The client's doing the work. But to know that you can help somebody and be there is an amazing thing. Love my job. Just saying. Did you have imposter syndrome? Oh my God, are you kidding me? Did I not mention this? Horrendous. So my parents were very well, you know, famous growing up. And I was this quite tall, gangly, slightly poppy fat child. I didn't understand that I was good looking till I hit my mid thirties. I didn't know I was. I didn't understand getting attention. You know, I knew I was bright, but I didn't know that. And then I didn't realize how bright I was till I hit my 40s. I was what you would call a late developer. Didn't I say I failed at everything? I was a late developer on every single level. But what's interesting about that is that my power now, I was more brash when I felt uglier and I felt whatever. I was more brash and in your face. And yeah, of course I can do it. The version of me now that's very powerful is much quieter and calmer and more peaceful because I don't need to shout about it. I don't want people to wait until they are perimenopausal and 35 to be able to make decisions and address mindset and address fears that enable them to move into their most powerful state. How do you parent your daughters and what kind of conversations do you have with them to collapse time on behalf of their growth? Oh my God, my poor kids. <laughs> my, poor kids. <laughs> my kids are like, but mama, you're the weirdo who's also a health nut. I'm like, um, okay. I knew that I had not been given these conversations and the support. So what I saw when I was growing up, there was a lot of power around me, right? But I was only allowed to look, not touch. None of that power was ever supposed to be mine. I could have married it. I could have been born to sister it or daughter it, but I wasn't allowed to have it for me. And so that was the thing I wanted my girls to have from the beginning. So we had with my girls and my boys, you know, there were five of them. And I was a single parent, like for almost all of it. And I had conversations every Sunday lunch. And my Sunday lunch conversations would make your hair curl. Like they would make your hair curl. I don't even know where this goes out. But my Sunday would be things like, you know what? Do you think you should be able to hire a person like you can hire pizza? Because there's an app where you can hire sex workers. Is a sex worker the same as a pizza? Should you be able to do that? Should you have to have sex with somebody because they say, I love you, and if you love me, you would have sex? Because how does that sound? Doesn't that sound manipulative? To me, that sounds like you should tell them to sod off. But what do you guys think? We drilled really down. I tell you, we had my poor children. I'm their mother, so I'm deeply irrelevant after a particular phase in time. And I don't know. I just had to mother the opposite of my mother. That was how I dealt with it. My mother lives down the road. We get on very well now. She's 89. She fed me lunch today. So that was nice of her. She's a great cook. So I'm not trying to, you know, my mother did the best of her version of it. And so what I did is I gave my children a sense of strength for who they were and where they came from. And that was my goal from the beginning. That's what I wanted them to have because we didn't have any money, did we? It took forever to make money. And everybody was richer than we were, including my idiot ex-husband. 
So the only thing I could give them was an essence of breeding, a sense of who they were. And I gave them that. You talked about this idea of, you know, we've observed power. And I think for a lot of women, we've observed labeling masculine power, maybe in our fathers, maybe in the workplace. And part of our observation towards being powerful is that form of power actually wasn't always the most appealing. It was it was bullying or it was aggressive or it was physical. And so if we could just nuance the word power a little bit so that we are contextualizing it maybe to a feminine power or maybe calling out the fact that that was never real power in the first place. But can we shed a new light on the word power so that we're really clear about what it is that we're talking about? Because I think there's a lot of baggage that accompanies it. I love that. That's like, let's just make power a bit more acceptable. (laughs) So I've got a big grin on my face. It's a very good note to hit because people think of power and corruption. They don't think of it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I speak on stage or TV or something once a week, minimum. And so I remember in 2018 or 20, I used to be terrified, 2018, 2019, I was like, I'm going to make a commitment to myself that every time I speak publicly, I will say I'm a very powerful woman. And I really like that about myself. And I used to have to work it into every conversation. In the beginning, it would just traumatize me. I was waiting for someone to go, no, you're not. (laughs) And then I got better at it. So my description of power, I call it to lead like a woman. Feminine power, I don't define it because I'm feminine and I'm powerful, but you're right to say that. But it's because our, our prototypes of power have always been either men or women behaving and acting in a masculine environment. And I, of course, I love to burn that shit down because, uh, you know, it's, it just shouldn't exist in my lexicon of thought. So for me, power is where you have a massive amount of feminine power. And feminine power is very different because it is a sense of self. It's a sense of lushness. It's a sense of fertility. And I don't mean making babies. It annoys me senseless when people go fertile is for making babies. Why can't I give birth to other things? Why do I have to give birth to a baby? And who are you to tell me what I'm going to give birth to? So sod off on that one as well. If I was to tap into the source of my power, I would say that my power was a very strong sense of every bit of who I am, understanding and accepting all of that. That's what I mean by power. I appreciate that. It's like the word meditation. It's got baggage in the common vernacular. It does. What happens to you when you sit? I wrote it down because I was like, oh, I feel like actually now I could say that out loud, that I'm a powerful woman. And I like that about myself. Do it again. Do it again. No uplift in the voice. I am a powerful woman. And I like that about myself. Thank you. That one's better. You're welcome. You see what happens to me every week, everyone? Kita just like, she owns it. And I was also really aware that in saying, just saying that, just holding space and being able to share that is triggering for other people. I'm not trying to project that. I can just imagine. Maybe I'll post this on Instagram and see where we can where we can go from a triggering place. Why is it so triggering for us when we, and I see this in women, when we see other people being successful? And I, I'll give it a little bit more context because my daughter's soccer team pummeled this other team the other day. And what was so amazing to watch on her face was this genuine excitement for the success of her teammates. She's like, we were trying to set up this person and set up this person so that they could all feel like they could get a goal. And afterwards she went up to them and sincerely wasn't just like, hey, good game. She's like, hey, I loved like your hat trick. I was so happy you had this experience. And it wasn't because she had 10 times more goals than other people or was more successful and was able to just shine this light. She sincerely was excited for her friend's success. And 
my husband and I were talking about that last night and he commented that, you know, from another scenario, he's like, gosh, I never really understood, like really, really understood just how vicious women can be to one another, how insincere they can be. They have a really hard time celebrating other women. Why did that make him think of that? I was just talking about how I congratulated Naya on her leadership after the game. I was so proud of her for doing that, right? And so he was like, the fact that we even had to to go and celebrate that, I was like, I don't want her to ever, I don't want her to ever lose that. I thought it was just honestly. I'm so proud of it. Well done. Brilliant. I know I was too. And go you as a mother. Thank you. And also, you know, just slipping in this sentence, I was recently at a group with women and and women were talking about their successes and things going on. And, and the overwhelming sentiment of the group was, I love that for you. It really brought so much joy to me because I've been in other groups where people will be talking about something that's going well. And you can feel this contempt and you can feel this envy and this jealousy. And disdain. Right. I want to talk about that because I think that this is, you know, there's parts of stepping into power and I'm doing my personal work. And then also I still engage in this type of behavior over here. I want to call out that behavior because I think being able to move past it and sincerely celebrating other people's wins is part of the genuine nature of stepping into that state of power. Can we just unpack a little bit our challenge that we have as women in this respect? No, absolutely. Because it's it's really close to what the work I've been doing recently. One thing I will say is that the more famous, the more successful I got, the less friends I had. I remember the first time I was on a national TV show, I think I lost 80% of my friends overnight. So friends with inverted commas, but I literally, I don't know if I became an introvert or I was forced into being an introvert because it just was very lonely because I would go from success to success to success. And I worked very hard at it because I was a single parent. Did you see what I just did there? I qualified my success so it's more acceptable so that I was a single parent that needed to feed my kids. So I was like, how much money can I possibly make? Right now that natural thing that we do to go, but look what I'm doing. So you can celebrate my single motherhoodness instead of just me being absolutely freaking amazing. But I, I lost friends over it. And I think the thing is this, as women get more successful and as they make more money and as they build more things and they do more things, they are more and more isolated. They are less and less supported, less and less people like them, less and less people help them. And it's one of the reasons I get clients like you, like my very famous clients, like my royal clients. There's nobody in their corner going, no, that's stupid. Let's just do this instead. And I'm quite brutal about it. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Honest comment. Yeah. But you know what? I think that that has a value in a place where no one is even going to talk to you. And if you do wrong, they'll be happy. So firstly, let's just lay that out there. I think for women, it's very difficult. Number one. Number two, I was actually thinking about this. I, thinking, I want to create a course called Unlearning Womanhood. I still may do that. But what happens is we are gaslit to such a massive extent as women. Here are the four things that I wrote down as a core tenets. One is that we are not taught to trust other women. We're taught not to do that. And what we need to do is learn to trust other women. Number two, I wrote, let's not connect in victimhood. So when you sit with another woman, it'll be like, yeah, I got divorced. Yeah, I was a single parent. Oh, I know. Like I was beaten. Like, oh, you know, that thing. And I'm sorry that these things happened to you. That doesn't have to be our space of connection. Our space of connection can be a celebration. Number three, I wrote, our radiance is not a threat to other women, but also it's not a threat to us mm -hmm. because we are attacked so much as women from young ages 
we get so much untoward attention, we kind of dim our radiance in order to survive, you know? And so it then becomes a threat, whether it's to us or to unwanted male attention or whatever it is, but our radiance is not a threat. Four, I wrote, shining as bright as you can is inspirational. And I could tell you that I think teaching those things would be incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. But that's why. So for everything that you said, that's why. We don't naturally do this. We are taught to do this because the version of womanhood, the version of femininity is so gaslit into an amorphous idea over here that has nothing to do with the reality of who we are as women, which is kind and loving and compassionate and gentle. And, and yet we're created into this terrible monster and that's acceptable. And why is that there? Because we should therefore only look for approval from outside of ourselves. Yeah. And you and I have talked about this. I've spoken openly and, you know, I'm happy to do that in this forum as well, that I have not had consistently positive experiences with women tangibly or energetically. And, you know, part of this work is certainly have manifests on a professional level. Part of this is just how I lead my three daughters. How do I, how do I reconstitute and rework my own experiences and place the meaning of those into an appropriate context so that that does not shift or poison how I speak to womanhood or motherhood or femininity or power with my own daughters? Never mind my broader community. But that's why you have to create your version of it. Yeah. Because if you don't create your version of it, you're going to create the womanhood version. And all that crap is part of womanhood. And we have to unlearn that mm -hmm. in order to be this version of womanhood. There's two things, if you look at our relationship, that underpin them. One is that your opinion of me is none of my business. If it was any of my business, I would not be a good coach. You know? And the second thing is your success brings me immense joy. Mm-hmm. Those are the two things that underpin the relationship. And if those two things could underpin every relationship we had, we would live in a different place. And it's in our hands to be those people. And that gets to be the work, is getting yourself to a place where you are okay releasing those other elements. Everything about that, I've talked and spoken to women who, and this will be no surprise to you, who are self-sabotaging their own success because of what that will do to them in the context of their community or in their family or with their colleagues. They're like, I don't know how to exist with the perception or real judgment that's going to come my way when I step into my state of true potential. That's a really real thing for them. I get that. I, I don't think we can dismiss it, but these are where all like the layers of work really come into play. It's also not even that hard, you know? I don't think that when we talk about the layers of work, we make it sound like it's very difficult. I don't think it's that hard. I do think it needs focus, but I don't think it's that hard. No, and it doesn't take forever. It doesn't take forever. Like the layers I have shed in the last four months are profound. And I see them now and I'm just kind of intolerant to their existence. I'm compassionate for where I was when I had those, but also I'm just over it. But if I had told you before we started that in four months you could shift this much, you wouldn't have believed it. No. Because we feel so entrenched and so stuck. We don't actually think we can shift those. But that's why you need an outside person. I still do this to this day, right? I find out where the problem is. I go find someone and I'm like, who is the problem? Okay, you. And I hired that person. I'm like, come and fix this for me. Show it to me. Talk to me about it. Tell me what it is. Tell me how to fix it. Thank you. Next. You know, and I'm very focused on that. I feel like we could do this all day long. But I know you've got people to serve, Gita. I want to shift the nature of the conversation. I want to throw a few rapid fire questions your way. And then we're going to tell everybody how they can follow along and learn more about 
what it is that you are up to. And my first question for you is this, how do you define abundance? Lushness. Mm. It's female. Abundance is female. It's the everythingness and the bigness and the joyness and the juiciness of being a woman. And money happens to come along too. Also that, but it's not just that. No, it can't be. It needs to start inside you and then the rest comes. What is your motivational beverage of choice? That really depends, sweetie. Now that's a loaded question. If it's daytime, it'll be tea. Look at me asking you loaded questions, Gita. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be Kenyan African tea or water. And if it's at night, it will be vodka or tequila. Depends what I'm motivating myself to get to. <laughs> What are we motivating for, Megan? You need so more what context. What are you motivating for? You tell me, I'll tell you. I appreciate that. What is currently on your not to-do list? You know, I don't even know. I don't think like that. I think that when I think I'm not going to do it, then I think, what am I going to do instead? And I go, that's really threw me that question. Do you know I don't have a not to-do list? It's okay. You don't have to. Is there anything that is like a hard boundary for you? I will not do that. Well, I don't like boundaries because I always feel they're very fragile that you can, I, I really hate boundaries. I think no one should have them because we put them where we're weak and then they reinforce the weakness, right? My hard limit is that I will not be someone who I am not my ethics or I don't even like principles and shit like that. I, I don't know. I don't like those words. I will always be me. That's my hard line in the ground. If it's something that won't be me, I will not do it or be it or say it or do it or anything. <laughs> I won't do things I don't yeah. want to do or be. I hear you loud and clear on that. Entrepreneurship. Were you born this way or did you learn to become an entrepreneur? I think I'm laughing because my girlfriend yesterday said, I can't help that the establishment just make me want to say, okay, and she's an entrepreneur. I said I was brought up with, by an entrepreneur who made so much money and was so arrogant. He thought the establishment should come and work for us. You know, so <laughs> it just to make me laugh. I think I was born one. My father was an entrepreneur and I have always been an entrepreneur. In fact, my 16-year-old, when I stopped refusing to buy her expensive clothes, went and set up our own business to buy her own clothes. I love it intergenerational entrepreneurship. Last question for you, Gita. What do you want your legacy of impact to be? My God, like I wish people would just let me run the world. I think it would function better. But in lieu of that, I would like, if I could get like <laughs> a thousand women, 10,000 women to be able to say what I think of me is the only thing that matters. If I could help them to feel powerful and to find their space in their voice, we would change the whole world because that would be a tipping point. We wouldn't have to do anything but that. And that would change the whole world. And I would die pretty much happy at that stage. I've already created a legacy. I've been kind of doing this for a long time, but that's kind of what I want. I feel that from you. Gita Sidhu, Rob, you are like my favorite person. You've been so instrumental in my life. Where can we send people to learn more about the incredible work that you do and follow along with your voice? Thank you. And it's been absolutely so much fun working with you. Honestly, I absolutely love it. It's just a pleasure and a joy and an honor. It really is. Go to anything that's called Gita Sidhu Rob. <laughs> it's G-E-E-T-A-S-I-D-H-U-R-O-B-B. -B. Go to Instagram, go to TikTok, go to, don't tell the kids I'm on TikTok. Go to websites, gitasidhurob.com and please send me a message. Please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Amazing. You can get hooked up with all of Gita's links over at meganwalker.com forward slash podcast. Gita, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in, or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel, and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.